almost like I legitimately almost deleted that the whole thing. That would have been bad. Dude, that would have been so bad. <laughs> oh, that would have been bad. Dude, I would. Good luck. You. <laughs> yeah, I would have felt like an idiot. This is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And this is Jacob Bratz of JLB Morelia, and you are listening to the Herpeticulture Podcast. going on guys this is episode 24 of the herpeticulture podcast my name is jacob brats with jlb morelia i'm justin smith of palmetto coast exotics tonight we are joined by the one and only mr justin julander two justins double the justins double the fun how's it going good yeah it wasn't creepy at all was it that was a little creepy <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, see, Justin's always got a little amount of creepy. I can bring it like, like at all times. <laughs> mm. I should have had my son come. His name's Jacob, so we could have. Oh <laughs> man! <laughs> oh man! It just it'd have been the, the Herpeticulture Podcast 2.0, man. Herpeticulture, Herpeticulture <laughs> Podcast squared. <laughs> or would it be? No, it wouldn't be cubed. No, cubed is three. Yeah, I don't know. Dumbass. <clears throat> Math was never my strong suit. <laughs> so. so what's going on, man? Uh, just living the dream. <laughs> How is it out uh, there in the uh, in the wilds of, of Utah? Yeah, things are uh, cold and snowy out here. Uh, although it's been uh, pretty warm the last couple of days. It's gotten up to like 40, 42 degrees. So it's uh, baking out here. We're uh, sun baking outside, you know? Jeez. I love how 42 degrees is uh, baking for you guys. When it's 42 yeah. here, we're all shivering. <laughs> the day before it turned 40, it was 13. So, Jeez. You know, 25, 30 degree shift in temperature, really, uh, it's all relative, right? Yeah, yeah. You can keep that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's nice for uh, cycling the animals, though. It uh, comes in handy, you know, during breeding season for, for a lot of stuff, and a lot oh, of sure times I perfect. can get, uh, get eggs on the ground, you know, a few months before other people. So yeah, yeah. It helps me cycle quick. For sure. I'm sure that it comes in handy when if you're working with, like, uh, bread lye or diamonds. Yeah, yeah. For sure, for uh, sure. Definitely a compromise. I think I'd live somewhere warmer, but my wife likes, uh, like, she would live in Alaska if she could, and I'd live down, like, in Arizona if I could. So <laughs> this is a nice place in the middle for it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Sounds like it. Best of both worlds. Yeah. And Utah, definitely. I mean, you can't you can't beat Utah with all the national parks and the red rocks and the mountains. It's, it's just a great place to live. It oh, does yeah, look like sure. a really pretty place to be. Yeah. I yeah. keep seeing pictures, and I, I, want, I want to check it out. Yeah. My, my grad student's from Iowa, and he said, like, there's – there's no public lands back east. Like, you can't just go off the road and walk up the mountain or something. You have to get permission or you'll get shot or stuff. So Jeez. it's kind of nice living in a state that's mainly, uh, you know, public lands. Yeah. Is there any good herping out there? Yeah. Yeah, there's some uh, some good spots. I mean, around here there's maybe, you know, 
handful of species, not not too terribly many, but um, there's a garter snake den, you know, not too far from my house. Um, you know, every spring you can go out and see 50 garter snakes, you know, rolling around in mating balls and stuff. <laughs> cool. And then down in the southwest corner of the state, you can, you know, see tortoises and gila monsters and oh, all nice. sorts of different rattlesnakes and stuff. So yeah, you get a little of that cool. Sonoran Desert cropping up in into Utah. But yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. That's awesome. It's pretty diverse. Yeah, that's the one thing I I do really like about the area we live is uh, we get a lot of diversity when it comes to snakes. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of species that uh, that live around here. It's been pretty cool. That's true. Yeah, I I went I went and tried to herp in uh, Alabama a couple of years back, and I didn't have much luck. <laughs> okay. You know, everybody. The, the people I was hanging out with are like, oh, yeah, we see stuff all the time around here. I just saw a box turtle over there the other day, and so I'm looking and sweating and, you know, I didn't find Jack, so yeah. I'm disappointed. But. Sounds like every time I go out to look for anything. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it was whenever I – because I used to work at a plantation uh, when I, while I was in college. I did my internship there, and uh, if I would go, like – looking for stuff i would never find anything but i would i would at least find one snake a week watch just while i was working you know doing whatever um but the large majority of my uh field herping is uh done by road cruising at in the evening times he's got a he's got some good spots yeah i i found i've found a lot of stuff road cruising it's definitely my most productive form of of herping you know i've done a lot just walking around in the woods but it's not nearly as uh as productive as a road cruise right at right at dusk um but it's uh it's been cool i found a lot i've found a lot of diversity on uh just one patch of road where, where i usually go i found rat snakes i found cane break rattlesnakes uh scarlet snakes water snakes copperheads you know all kinds of stuff out on just one stretch it's, it's pretty cool that's awesome yeah we even got lucky enough and uh found a mud snake out there really which was really cool. cool yeah they're uh those that, things are weird that really bright red bellies like really cool looking yeah mm-hmm. yeah the, the thing i thought was so cool about them is because uh, we because we had been looking for one for a while and uh, my buddy is a big photographer so we we took it back and got some pictures and released them but uh handling him it was so cool because he's get they've got these really sharp tipped tails yeah, and they poke oh, you yeah. with them. Yeah, it's really funny. They they'll dig into your skin. They're actually pretty sharp. Uh, I think one of them broke my skin like a little bit. It didn't mm-hmm. make me bleed or anything, and it doesn't the hurt. Blind, the blind snakes do the same thing. Like if you ever go to Hawaii, that's the only species okay. of snake they have on Hawaii that's supposed to be there, and they do the exact same thing. And uh-huh. you actually like you can feel it. Like those little suckers, man. They, yeah, they dig in there pretty good. Yeah, they're really cool. But yeah, that mud yeah, snake yeah, was I've definitely been... uh, definitely cool. I, it's funny. I'll be I'll be like assisting one of like a you know if one of my snakes has a bad shit. Sometimes they'll kind of like swing their tail at you or something. You know, like try yeah. to poke you or something. And right. Seems like they get a little ticked off, like a woma or something. For I sure. Enjoy that. But, I feel yeah, like womas. I think, I think that might be a common thing for a few snakes. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like womas will do just about anything though. Those things are. <laughs> those things are they're really like uh tactile sensitive like you touch any part of their body and they just kind of throw it at you you (laughs) try to pin you with it (laughs) yeah that's really cool i I definitely want to work with womas one day um i got a few other projects i'm kind of focusing on but they'll definitely be something i want to work with down the road yeah yeah they're a fun species to work with so what's what's one in the wild they're 
They're fun to see in the wild, too. Oh, yeah, I, I can imagine. I'd really like to do that. <laughs> yeah, that'd be sweet. Yeah. They're a little little harder to find, I guess. You don't find them as commonly. Mm. But, uh, That's what Casey yeah, was saying. Got, yeah, they're a little more, more uh, rare. I don't know if they're rare or they just stay off the roads or what. But, mm -hmm. yeah. Very cool. So what's the uh, what's the bulk of your collection right now? Um, it's it, Australian pythons. Probably I probably have too many anteresia right now. I, I don't <laughs> know if you can't have too many anteresia. Yeah. But anteresia are, are fun because they you know they're small. They fit in a small space. You know I can I can probably fit you know twenty pairs of anteresia in the same amount of space that I have my olive pythons in. You know so it's definitely a nice space uh, saving snake. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I, uh, I've really been kind of focusing on the Western Stimpsons. They're just uh, not quite uh, readily available in the U.S., and so that's kind of been one of my focuses to kind of make those a little more available. Uh, I had a really good season this year, so I've got you know quite a few pairs uh, available this year, and this is kind of the first year that I've really been trying to to sell them actively. You know, before mm -hmm. it was just you know if I had a friend or something who wanted some who knew I had them, they'd. Uh, you know, get a pair or two, but um, yeah. So this is the first season I've kind of put them up on the website and offered them for sale. Do Do you feel like Antaresia are getting <clears throat> a little bit more popular within the hobby, or do you think they're kind of starting to fall off a little bit? What's your What's your take on that? I don't know. I you know I I I guess it maybe it's uh, <laughs> I I don't know if I want them to be all popular. Right. I just see you know, weird things happen when things get really popular, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, for uh, sure. Yeah, and it, it seems like there's not, you know, there's not a lot of morphs with them, so people don't really, at least available in the U.S., and so people don't. They're not neon-colored. There's not a morph, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, they're they're good they're good looking enough on their own, and, you know, I've uh, spent, spent a few years selected breeding uh, some of the species, and, you know, it really makes a difference to hold back the nicest ones and breed yeah. those together and you know just keep refining your lines and right got some some of my eastern stems almost look like westerns you know they're so nice uh, bright colored and they look really good so nice. i you know i uh i kind of like the niche stuff you know that's not everybody's not clamoring over it i kind of stopped uh working with a lot of carpets just because there were so many people doing carpets and you know you'd have to um compete with 50 other guys and you know it's just like well i don't have that time i've got a full-time job i got a family and you know I'd, I'd rather not spend my time trying to sell you know trying to market snakes i, I just like to keep them you know the selling them thing is just kind of a on the side thing so right and that, that's know. that's kind of why what you just said is kind of exactly why i've honed in on popwin uh carpet pythons because i feel like they're definitely the the least common of uh of the Spilota, you know, complex. Um, there's just, you know, there wasn't a lot of people working with, you know, the line bread stuff, you know, obviously you had granite and, you know, some exanthic stuff mixed into, you know, other subspecies, but, you know, as far as, you know, line bread pop ones, there weren't a lot of people doing it and kind of why I, yeah, I honed in on that. That's really surprised me because, uh, you know, I, for some reason, North of Australia, I just kind of lose interest a little bit, you mm -hmm. know, but, uh, the, uh, the, there are some really phenomenal looking um, Erians that, you know, Erian Jays out there that are just beautiful, you know, they're just really bright orange, and I'm surprised nobody's really 
capitalized on that and just refined that and, and bred them. Right, and that's definitely there. There's a handful of people really trying to, you know, line, you know, selective breed those, and uh, I definitely want to be a part of that going forward. But yeah, I agree. There's a there's a lot of potential within uh, within the pop one side of uh, carpets, and uh, it's going to be cool watching it expand a little bit and see what some people can do with some of their projects. I just don't think they hit the ground running like jungles did. No, yeah, no, they didn't. And that's pretty. That's kind of exactly why I don't keep jungles because I feel like you know everybody who keeps carpets keeps a lot of jungles, you know. Um, and that's kind of why I steered away from them. I don't own a single jungle right now, you know. As far as anything selective bred, I I think I have one. My first carpet python, some type of cross, and I'm sure there's jungle in her. Mine was. Yeah, mine yeah, was a cross. Sure, yeah, I'm sure there's you know jungle in her down the down the road. But as far as anything line bred, you know, I definitely don't have anything like that in my collection yeah you're a dark sider then oh yeah that's i'm more of a light (laughs) yeah that's what um (laughs) uh, scott borden was telling me about that he commented on one of my pictures uh (laughs) talking about the dark side i was like yeah i'll take that (laughs) i'll be on the dark side (laughs) darth brats back back in the old uh morelia pythons uh the website days you know the the forums and stuff that was uh topic of the day if you're light side or dark side you know which side did you choose yeah that's funny kind of funny that's actually something I I thought about trying to bring back bring back in some of the some of the stuff but uh, I just thought it was funny I don't even I wonder if you can even get the the old posts on there or not I I haven't been on there for a little while I think Facebook kind of killed everything as forums go unfortunately I think they still hang out at the, one of the you know a couple of the chondro forums but you know i i get on there every once in a while and just see what's going on and a few people post here and there so i guess it's still alive but i don't know it's uh too bad because it was nice to have everything archived you know you could go back and search the threads and find right. old topics and search you know information and you just can't do that as well with facebook so you yeah. everybody kind of asking the same questions and that kind of thing so that's uh, a little uh, a little frustrating that way I guess that's kind of the reason you know maybe books are still relevant you know you can uh, still put, put information down and have it in a uh, you know something that people can get and read and learn about and stuff like that that's kind of one of the reasons I've tried to get stuff down on page and and uh, make that available in a in book form <laughs> For sure, for sure. Well, as the owner of two of your books, you do a pretty good job, I gotta say. Oh, I appreciate that. But yeah, you nice did you, you did the complete carpet python with Nick Mutton. Mm-hmm. And then you did the book on chondros with Terry Phillip. Yeah. And then did you do the complete children's python too? Did you have a hand in that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That was, uh, I still need to get that one. one. I did that again, another one with uh, Nick. Together and then we had uh, Ben Morrill. He wrote a cool chapter on on carpet breeding um, in the Carpet Python book. And okay. then um, Peter Birch. He's the Australian Ant Man. Mm-hmm. Yep. He's got the best collection of anteries I've ever seen. But that guy, <laughs> he's a lot of fun. They're he's insane, not, man. Yeah. I've seen some of his uh, some of his stuff on YouTube, and he yeah. he'll he'll make you want anteresia if nobody mm-hmm. else yeah. does. His his collection is just absolutely insane. Oh yeah, yeah. I I think one of you know one of his projects is kind of 
um, one of the impetus for my uh, selective breeding projects because he he got this locality um, eastern Stimson's python that he went and caught out in the middle of nowhere, you know, maybe a decade or two ago. And they weren't anything special, you know, it was kind of brown and spotty and not, not too exciting looking. Nobody would, you know, start throwing cash at you to get that snake. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so he, he started, you know, breeding them and holding back the offspring. And I think it, was, it wasn't too long, maybe two or three generations. And these things were like bright yellow. He called them the like sunburst line or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just really cool looking snakes, you know. So it really doesn't take too many generations of, of selective breeding to, you know, that where you can see some really nice results. So you know, I kind of saw he showed me, you know, here's here's the first generation, here's the second generation. And you just kind of see it evolve into this, you know, eye popping uh, candy snake. Mm-hmm. So. Pretty cool. cool, but he's yeah, he's got a crazy collection. He, I was uh, going to check out his stuff, you know. I was, I woke up and I went down to his herb room and, and I was just looking through the tubs, at, you know, his antresia, and I opened one. I'm like, that looks like a death adder. <laughs> like, that is a death adder. Hurry <laughs> <laughs> and shut the cage before he uh, takes a swipe at me or something. But yeah, oh, they, those Aussies and their uh, lapids, you know, they. <laughs> Those things are no the joke. Thing happened to his wife too. She didn't know he had them, and so. <laughs> Jeez, man. Yeah, there's uh, a there's. I a... was with another. There's another uh, guy, Steve Slark. He's up in you know Darwin area, and we he worked at the, the crocodile farm. We went out and hung out with him for a day and checked out the farm, and then he took us for a barbecue of you know some uh, some crocodile steaks and kangaroo steaks and stuff at his Jeez. house, and you know he had a collection and he. He's showing us his snakes, and he pulls out a couple red belly blacks and hands them to me. You know, and I'm just sitting here, these red belly black snakes crawling through my hands. I'm like, okay, did somebody get a picture, and then I'm going to give them back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. put these down and as then, quick as possible. Yeah, and then he was showing me his death adders, and he just, you know, he picks up this death adder like it's a ball python and just sets it in my hands. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm so dumb for letting you, you do this to me, but it's so cool. Dude, <laughs> I, I don't know if I could do that, man. Yeah. That's a, that's a little too much. It, it was a, he, well, so one of his friends was even worse. Uh, like uh, Shane Black's his name, and he had like a, a baby death adder, you know, just, just had uh, been born, and, and he took it, and he's like, hey, watch this, and he turns his back, and then he turns back around, and the death adder's, head is hanging out of his mouth like he's got the whole body in his mouth with the head hanging out the front of his mouth oh my and then he goes okay check this out he turns around and then he comes back and the tail's hanging out of his mouth you know like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> dear. they are insane man no uh, man i oh i don't even know if i could watch that <laughs> freaking australians man you know, like just you know, we see a see a wild dilapid, you know, cruising down the road, and Peter would just run over there and grab it by the tail and hold it so we could take pictures. You know, uh, uh, you kind of get into it. You know, I I uh, I did that with the red belly black. I had you know show me how to do it and try to do it all properly. But I was tailing a red belly black by Jeez. the end of the day. You know, it was kind of cool. That's crazy. And then man. Had a friend with an inland tie band that he brought to you know let everybody kind of get wanker shots is what they call them <laughs> pictures with uh, you know different animals and so you're holding this inland taipan by the tail so it's pretty cool jeez man that's so yeah they're nuts you that... kind of you know went in rome i guess <laughs> yeah that must have been a crazy experience though man oh <clears throat> uh, yeah 
that's awesome. How, how many times have you been to Australia? Um, I've been over five times. Okay. Um, what my first trip was to like Cairns area around Cairns, and we went north to the Iron Range, found a couple of green tree pythons, and then me and my dad split off from the group and headed over to Alice Springs and mm-hmm. did a couple weeks in the center of Australia and uh, cruised around there, kind of like what Casey Cannon did. Mm-hmm. Um, Except you had water with you, right? Rattled. Yeah, and it was raining the whole time. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it was, you know, it was cool to see waterfalls off Uluru, but other than that, it kind of sucked as far as uh, the animals go. But we, we still found plenty of cool stuff, um, but I just missed out on all the stuff I wanted to, yeah, that I really, you know, all the top stuff on my list I, I missed out on, but we gotcha. still saw quite a few cool animals. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And then the second trip uh, started out in Sydney and then it moved up to Darwin for a couple weeks, and that was with uh, Rico Walder and Peter Birch and Nick Mutton and, and a couple others. And then we, uh, and during, during that time, I, that was when the Carpet Python book came out, and I'd sold uh, like, I think it was like 10 grand worth of books to this uh, Australian guy who was hosting the symposium. And uh, I found out after, like, I'd had the books sent and they were on their way to him, I found out he was a crook. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh. <laughs> so I was trying, trying my hardest the whole time to get him to pay. And then, you know, we, we go up. He's like, oh, yeah, no worries. Money's, in the, money's on its way. You know, you should see it in your account any day now. And money never came. Money never came. And, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm out, you know, no books. And he's, he accuses me of trying to swindle him. And so he's like, you know, I'm keeping the books, and, you know, I can't believe you tried to do that. And then he left me stranded in Darwin, so I had to buy my own plane ticket back to Sydney. Jesus. It was a big, uh, big fiasco. But then my my friends, the Kuligowski family, uh, Troy in Denver, and Troy, um, they they flew me up to Brisbane and and took me out herping, showed me some private collections, just showed me a really nice time to have my trip end on a happy note. I mean, those guys are the cream of the crop. They're just good people. Yeah, so, it, it was really unfortunate, you know, what uh, what happened with uh, Troy and whatnot. Yeah. And, and the, that, whole, yeah that whole cancer thing. I know he was uh, struggling with that for a while. Yeah, on our on our last trip. So the, the third and fourth trips were both to Western Australia. The first trip I went on with my wife, and then the sec- the one after that I went on with uh, with a couple buddies, uh, Steve Sharp and Mike Fredrickson. And then we basically did the same trip both times, and mm-hmm. fantastic stuff. Western Australia is where it's, where it's at. But uh, then the, the last trip I took my kids, and we went to uh, um, the – did a – uh, trip up the east coast from sydney to Cairns and back so we went inland on the way up and then coastal on the way back and stayed with peter birch and stayed with troy and his family and mm. um yeah it was it was tough to see him suffering from the cancer stuff and yeah um but i think he's you know he's a fighter man that guy's tough as nails <laughs> yeah so I, I think i can tell you know he'll he'll be all right but uh yeah, sure. it's not fun to see him suffering like that yeah and they're not they're not breeding any animals anymore are they I think they sold most of their stuff. I think they had a few projects left, but uh, yeah, not not so many anymore. I think they they were selling their albino olives last I heard. Yeah, I think that was the last one that they had. But yeah, it's really sad because yeah. Troy had about the best collection of carpets in Australia, man. Yeah, good stuff. I, I watched. I always loved 
hanging out with him. Yeah, I watched a lot of his uh, YouTube stuff when I, you know, when I was first getting in the carpets, and man, he was, yeah. he was my favorite channel. Man, I watched all of his stuff. He had, he had some awesome animals, and uh, Denver's blackheads were just, oh, yeah. absolutely insane, man. Yeah, for sure. That was that was uh, crazy because you know you, ever, you overhear everybody says, oh, you got to keep them thin. You got you can't let them get overweight or they never breed. And I go over and I see Den's collection, and his his blackheads are about as big as they can get, and about as wide around as a dinner plate, and they breed every year. And I'm like, wait a second, you know, <laughs> something's, something's off here. You yeah. know, you, what I, maybe what I've been told isn't correct. And so I came home and started feeding mine a little more, and you know, I've gotten slugged the last couple of years from my blackheads, so hopefully this year is the year. She's looking gravid, she's refusing food, and so. Hopefully she'll lay some good eggs this year. I bumped up the heat a little bit and put the mail with her a little earlier because kept laying eggs in like February, and so I'm like, I don't think I'm putting the mail in there early enough or cooling mm-hmm. him down early enough. So I started the season a little earlier for them this year. So hopefully that'll make a difference. But yep. be sure nice to hatch out some of those western blackheads. But, <laughs> Man, I I, uh, I love blackheaded pythons. They're just so stinking cool. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping one day I can, I can get my hands on some of those. I don't really they're, get the hype. They're just, oh, they're so cool, man. I, I don't know how you couldn't get the hype. I don't know. They're, because awesome. they're not yeah. green and on a stick, that's why. Yeah, well, that's all you care about. So. That is all I care if about. You like, if you like colubrids, they're like a giant colubrid. Yeah. They're like a king snake, man. I do like colubrids. Eight-foot eight king snake, you know. They yeah. Just, you open their cage and they start you know, moving around as fast as they can go. They're runners, you know, they don't really, I guess, I, I haven't, they haven't really struck at me before. They're pretty easy going. But Are they, yeah, do, it, do they have a kind of a similar personality to that of a Woma? Um, not, not really. I, okay. I would, they're, they're kind of different. So it's kind of fun to work with both of them, but, uh, right. the, the, the Womas tend to be, you know, go after you, you know, everything's food, mm-hmm. can I eat it type mentality. And the blackheads seem to be like, did you just touch me? I'm out of here. You know, and they still run. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know, once you get them out and kind of handle them, they're fine. Although, you know, you, you're sitting there holding the woman and it's, you think everything's good and then it just starts nosing you and all of a sudden it grabs on and it won't ever let go. You know, you got to like plunge your hand in a bucket of water to cut yeah. off their air supply so they'll let go and it's not a pleasant experience but you know the i haven't been bit by a black kid yet so that's probably a good thing and hope that doesn't happen but the, <laughs> yeah they're they're a lot of fun for but sure. i you know Den, denver kind of ruined it for me as far as the the blackheads go because you know seeing his stuff i'm like oh man that's what i want <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah it it made me wait for the the right opportunity before right. I, picked up some but i really wanted some of those black and white westerns you know that was oh, what man. i was hoping to get so for I'm sure happy to find a pair of those after a yeah, while from, that's uh, awesome Ryan Young. i see yeah. there's i see the occasional black hat at some of the shows down here but i think honestly i'm pretty sure it's the same person with like one animal and he's got it you know yeah. priced through the roof well, and it's, it's, it's an, an adult interesting thing because i think uh blackhead marketing is kind of a strange thing i think they there's there's uh, um, a few people who have done really well breeding them, mm-hmm. and and they just uh, keep that price high, and they haven't dropped the price at all. And I, you know, I 
I don't fault them for that, but yeah. I think the market, you know, it's kind of a higher end market and they're viewed as more of a higher level or higher difficulty of snake to keep. So people don't just rush into it, you know, right, they right. tend to wait a little while. So, and our, our, think, you know, if they were produced more readily and people, you know, it's a little easier to breed them, they might be a little cheaper and a little more right. ready, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have the challenge of breeding them and for <laughs> see sure. how it goes. Are, so are, are they just difficult to breed or are they hard to, you know, house? You know, is their husbandry a little bit more adva- on the advanced side or yeah, okay. what's that look like? There's a lot of rustling going on. <laughs> you guys wrestling or something? No. <laughs> no, are you talking to us? Uh, oh, yeah. I just hear a lot of movement. Oh. Oh, no. I can. Justin might be moving around with his mic or something. Might be. Can you oh, hear okay. us okay? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. I don't hear the wrestling anymore. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, That's where you guys were attacking each other. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but our blackheads are they are they just difficult to breed, or are they a hard species to you know to house? You know, what's their husbandry kind of look like? Um, I'm you know, you know, I I don't have a lot of experience. I've only just have the one pair. Okay. So, and like I said, I've gotten slugs the last two years, so I'm probably not the best person to ask. But <laughs> um, as far as keeping them, they're they're pretty bulletproof they're pretty easy at least once okay. they get started feeding you know they right. can be a pain in the neck to get feeding in the wild they're they're uh, probably what feed 75 80 percent on on reptiles okay they want to eat lizards coming out of the gate I um, gotcha. you know with the captive breeding and the um you know generations that have been produced in the u.s i think maybe that's becoming less of an issue right. uh, you know kind of like with what's done with hog nose you know you don't your western hogs come out looking for mice almost these days instead of toads so right. i think it can be overcome to some extent but yeah they they tend to hold out uh for rodents um you know okay. they, they won't eat rodents right out the gate for yeah. a long time so jason hood was on from the ground up recently and he he breeds those and he was talking about getting babies started on mice is just a complete nightmare yeah yeah so i think that's another thing that kind of keeps people away from them uh same with anchoresia, you know, they're, they want lizards when they come out, and so it's been a little, little tr- you know, it's a little tricky to get them feeding as well, so, uh, but, you know, if you, if you like them, it's worth the effort to get them feeding, and, you know, over, I, I uh, so those, uh, my first generation of Western Simpsons produced for the first time this year, and the F2s, um, you know, I had a really good success rate with those guys, the F1s were a nightmare to get feeding on on rodents so um you know the more you the, you keep them back and the more they're produced in captivity the better chance you have of getting them to start off the bat on rodents right so just gets a little easier but somebody's got to do the the difficult leg work i guess yeah for sure there's there's a lot of cool species i mean i that uh big book of snakes uh o'shea's book yeah that thing's incredible it, it is was really kind of eye-opening to see how many species are out there that eat reptiles like there's there's a ton of different snakes that eat lizards you know and that's like their specialty so um i think we're we're limited in a lot of ways as reptile keepers because we like lizards too and we don't want to feed them to snakes and so you know you don't want to uh you know go out and get a bunch of feeder lizards or something so right you try to force them to eat what you want them to eat and yeah, I think some of the innovations with uh, the Repti Links or the 
different scents and things like that or, or tricks you can use to, to get stuff started like the uh, Colubrid community is mm-hmm. well versed in uh, you know, makes yeah. it a little easier but it still is a little bit of a challenge yeah that's one thing I have with people who want to get into stuff like a, a, um, Smith I would, I'm going to use last names here since we since we got two Justins <laughs> Smith uh, Asian vine snakes are yeah. lizard ears, ears yeah. right so that's my thing with you know a lot of something people you know if they jump into something like that like oh it's cool it's not too expensive I'm going to get yeah, it yeah it's 20 bucks it looks right, awesome right yeah. and then so yeah. they're going to go the cheap way out then go outside and catch some anoles to try and feed it you know if they hear oh yep. it eats lizards you know it'll either A not eat any mice or B they're going to go out and just grab whatever they can and that's going to cause yeah. so many other problems yeah. you know past you know parasite taking, city exactly taking plucking something out of the wild but you know people won't think twice about it you know because they're just yeah. some redneck who thought the snake was cool and they're gonna feed it whatever they can find outside you know and it's uh people don't well, realize there's I, there's a reason that snake is cheap and there's a reason they're everywhere and there's a yeah. reason no one's breeding them yes and yeah. vine snakes are the prime example of that yes Absolutely. Yeah. It's just, you know, unfortunate because they are cool animals. I, yeah. I thought a little bit about that, you know, like uh, with parasites and reptiles. It seems like most uh, most reptiles, especially reptiles that eat other reptiles, have a pretty good parasite load. You know, that's a, that's a common thing, you know. And, uh, and it seems like, you know, at least, you know, being a virologist, you think about this, like uh, a parasite or uh, a disease-causing organism that's really aggressive and just wipes you out, it's not going to last long, you know, it's right. going to kind of flash in the pan, you know, Ebola, we can control mm-hmm. Ebola outbreaks because you just have to isolate patients from other people, and then Ebola is not going to spread, whereas things like, you know, I study Zika, and Zika spread like crazy across, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, South America, Central America, Caribbean um, because it doesn't cause a very severe disease. You know, 80% of the cases don't even know they have Zika, and so it can spread pretty readily. It doesn't kill you. You know, there's well, probably a less than a 0.01% mortality rate with Zika, and so it's really kind of a safe disease. You know, you'll feel like crap for a couple weeks, and then you're back back good, and, and your body basically clears the virus for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, it can hide out in certain tissues in some instances, but... Um, you know, I wonder if uh, parasite loads in, in reptiles are similar where they can, you know, in, in the wild they can have a reasonable parasite load and it's just when they come into captivity and they get stressed that that, imp- that becomes an imbalance and they can yeah. get overtaken, you know. Right. Um, I've wondered about ticks too, just especially seeing that uh, picture. I don't know if you guys saw that with the, yeah. the carpet python that had like 500 ticks on it. Yeah, I saw this that. poor thing was just covered. <laughs> And there's got to be something that's uh, going on with, you know, why that animal had such a huge tick load, and why, you know, I, you know, I, I I'm trying to think what would what would result in that. I, but, I feel like um, there they said something about that 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 animal had been it had some type of injury that I believe it had, it had something that caused it to not be as um, as healthy and it kind of became prone to like less resistant. Yeah. It, some, it was, some, 
I don't know if it was injured or in some way, um, but it made it more. There was some sort of incentive for those ticks to, right, to, to jump, jump on board. Yeah, yeah and he, it, yeah. I think he was yeah. very stationary for a long time mm-hmm. in uh, in an area yeah. because of this yeah. injury. I, I'm pretty sure they said something about it. I'm not too sure, but yeah, okay. I, I definitely don't. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, I definitely don't yeah. disagree with you with that theory. You know, there's got to be something that that caused. Yeah. You know, that animal to have that many ticks. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, it was ridiculous to him. I, they, they showed a little jar of all the ticks they pulled off it, man. And there mm-hmm. was five to 600 on there. And that was, it uh, was insane. It felt so bad for that animal. Yeah. yeah. It's creepy as heck. But yeah, those, those parasites are, yeah. So, you know, I, I think as, as long as you can keep the animal, you know, in a low stress environment, give it, give it the, it's, uh, meet its needs as far as thermal, thermal needs and, and uh, just kind of have a stress-free environment. I, I imagine it could they could do fine with the parasite load. It's just when they get undue stress or yeah, when that too much stress that, that scale gets over. tipped. Yeah. Yep. And and I guess that's easy to do in captivity when you're, you know, especially if you're interested in the animal. I think you know our pe- keeper's way of interacting with their animals is to either feed it or to handle it. You know, and mm. if if that's stressing out the animal, if it doesn't want to eat, sticking a food item in front of its face and waving it around or, you know, trying to tap it on the body, that's just going to add to the stress. So, you know, it's kind of a catch-22. But I think if you could get stuff established and and give it kind of a natural prey item in a natural setting where you just put a lizard in there and let it run around until the snake or whatever catches it, you know, I wonder how much that uh, parasite load would really impact the snake. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the parasites over here, they're not used to, you know, anytime you go right, to the right, country right. and you <laughs> get a parasite, it's a little worse than the natives or, you know, somebody comes here and gets a parasite, it's a little worse for them. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a balance, I think. And um, I don't know. It's, a, you know, it's hard because there's a lot of cool reptiles out there, I think, would make really neat uh, display animals, or or you know, be able to keep and interact with these animals in captivity would be cool. But they're just just difficult because we don't have their natural prey. You know, it's a little different than their natural environment, and so you know, we're restricted, I guess. And uh, that that kind of goes along with the lines of uh, something Harlan Wall has talked to us about. Um, with, you know, what's in captivity, uh, snakes aren't you know exposed to certain types of bacteria um, that they're exposed to in the wild. And you know, when they're brought here, you know, taking things from outside will expose them to not natural bacteria that they would be. Um, what's the word exposed to exposed it, yeah. to in their natural environment where they can they're, they're okay with that with this with x bacteria but they're not okay with y bacteria mm-hmm. you know what i mean um yeah. so I, I definitely think I, that that gets kind of the same type of theory when it comes to uh parasites you know because they're they're gonna have something you know it, it's yeah. uh, at least i assume they would in the wild but you know like you like you're saying you know yeah I, I wondered about that. I had to call Harlan after I listened to your show with him on it because I, I was thinking, you know, that's that's an interesting concept because I, we did a little bit of work in the lab, you know, with our virus infection models, and we did uh, uh, some things like changing the diet or treating with a different, uh, um, you know, treatment to see if we could alter the gut flora makeup, you know, and so... And, and just doing some background research into that, there's a huge amount of influence that our gut bacteria have on our health or, 
or or illness or inflammation or whatever you know and they demonstrated different aspects of that um, it's funny that we're we're more bacteria than we are human we've got more bacterial cells in our bodies than we have human cells in our body so you know are we a are we a bacteria shell with a human skin on it you know or what but right, <laughs> anyway right. that the, the uh, has such a an influence on the body and um, you know I was, I was thinking about that would it make a huge difference if they had you know normal flora and you know you get a centimeter of soil and it's got like three in it you know it's a tiny amount of dirt but you've got that many bacteria in there mm-hmm. you know you can uh, can't even count that high you know it's there's so many bacteria mm-hmm. um but uh you know are are they that much different that you know if you had different internal gut flora from United States versus Southeast Asia or something, would it make that much of a difference? Mm-hmm. And I, I thought I, I thought it was interesting. I kind of had to call Harlan out on this a little bit when I talked to him. But, like, you know, if you're giving them probiotics, what does that do? Probiotics are, are bacteria that colonize the gut. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think he was getting, you know, probiotics from Southeast Asia or, you know, or Indonesia or, you know, New Guinea or something to mm-hmm. colonize his animals' guts with. So, you know, in the same sentence of, you know, that we can't keep them naturalistic because we don't have those bacteria from their region or we have novel bacteria that they're not used to, well, a probiotic would be the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So well, yeah. That wouldn't be a, 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 a bacteria from their region. So, and and I wondered, too, if, if uh, gut flora, you know, that you find in commonly available pro- probiotics like the lactobacillus or something like that, if that would be something that would work in a reptile right if it's even beneficial for them in the first place yeah there was a there was a little trick to kind of get that was going around the the uh, morelia pythons forums that was uh um trying you know you'd feed your picky hatchlings that weren't starting you that didn't want to eat you'd uh give them a give them a shot of yogurt you know squirt some yogurt into their mouth and Mm kind of work it down their throat or whatever and and people were reporting, oh, I'm having great success. You know, now that I've uh, done that, my snake started eating, and kind of it kind of was like a way to kickstart their their digestive tract or something, or get them, mm-hmm. you know, something in their gut and get them to eat. And you're thinking, well, you know, some milk-based product is that what a you know? But it seemed to work. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried it with some anteresia, and they all, they all ended up not doing so well. So I uh, I stopped uh, trying that trick on at least with anteresia, but. Um, and, and maybe it was a little late in the game when I tried it. You know, they were already picky for several months and had to be assisted. So maybe it was the timing was off. You know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the tricky thing with so many things in herpticulture is you've got, uh, you know, an idea or an, or almost like an old wives' tale that's just kind of passed around, and they say, oh, this is how you have to do it or this is how it is, and then nobody questions that. They just go yep. along with it until somebody says hey wait a second why are we doing this what is this what is the point of this you know like um I, you know i kind of learned that from terry phillips where you know i i thought green tree pythons were you know only for experts he's like ah they're the easiest snake to keep and i'm like well i live in the desert I ha- i'd have to spray them you know 24 hours like i never spray mine i live in south dakota and it's very similar to climate to where you're at and i'm like oh okay <laughs> that makes a big difference I, I i'll give them a try you know and so that kind of thing it's just uh that mentality um and you know it goes back to when they were spraying every day just to keep them alive because they were 
they'd been on a boat for two months, you know, getting over to America in the good old days, and and they were just trying to put them on life support, you know. Right. You wouldn't keep a keep a you know toddler in an ICU just to keep them going, you know, when they're healthy already. So kind of akin to that, I guess. But you know, but that got established. No, chondros need to be sprayed daily, and you know, if you don't do that, then they're going to die. Well, maybe that's not true. You know, let's test it out. Let's see what happens if we don't do that. Or, and you know, there's there's some risk in that. So I can understand why people don't want to challenge those notions. And mm-hmm. some are tried and true. You know, some are from really good experience where people said, ah, nuts to that, and they did it and damaged their animals or something. You know, mm-hmm. popping a chondro when it's too young or something like that. So it's right. very similar to the the conversation we were having the other day where I, why I asked you about maternal incubation versus artificial incubation and yeah there's a lot of people that don't want to do it because they're they're worried that they're gonna lose eggs or lose the female or lose both and mm-hmm. i get it but it's kind of yeah. like you said you know someone it has to someone has to try it and record what what happens and and if, and if you do it, you know, and you have great success, then maybe you're paving the way for new things to happen or, or you know, more improvements to occur. But if you never risk it, then you never know. And, you, um, and just because one person fails doesn't mean the next person is going to fail. You know, mm-hmm. things could be different in different places and with different animals. It's all, it's all tricky. And a lot of these things are not done truly scientifically. You know, they observed it in one or two animals and so then all of a sudden it became this hard fast rule yeah well you know that that doesn't that's not really a scientific way of doing things you've got to have controls and you've got to try two different you know experimental uh, scenarios or methods on them and see what works and what doesn't and you know that even that can be difficult to to ascertain sometimes you know we've we uh we've, we were doing studies uh influenza studies in the lab and we were ordering mice from one of the you know, mouse suppliers, and uh, we weren't getting very good results, even though we kept, you know, some studies would be great, and then other studies would completely fail, even though we were using the same infectious dose and the same, you know, all the same parameters for our experiments. And so we were like, you know, how do we figure out how to stop this, you know, how, how to stop studies from failing? And so we called the supplier, and it turns out, you know, that they had been supplying mice from two different facilities. The same oh. strain of mice, and uh, when they'd come from the one facility, the studies would fail, but when they came from the other stud- uh, facility, the studies would be fine. And so, you know, we just, well, we won't order, you know, order from that facility, but, you know, what, what's causing that? And they did a, they did a little study between, I, I can't remember if it was that same animal supplier or a different one, but they, they looked at uh, two different um, facilities that had been, you know, the they had colonies of the same mouse strain in each facility, you know, one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast, and they found 50,000 genetic changes in the genome between the two facilities. Wow. 50,000, you know, differences in their in their genome, and you know, 50,000 out of you know, however many. Yeah, that's a drop in the bucket, pairs. kind of compared. Yeah. To, yeah. But you know how many how many base pairs does it take yeah. to cause a, a mutation? You know, still not a, still not so, a small number. Exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of an, an interesting thing to think about. You know, when you separate something from its population, is it still that same thing? You know, you're you're changing it in certain ways. And you know, in captivity, I, I always I always like to kind of 
be the devil devil's advocate on this for the you know the purists or whatever they'd say oh we want to keep our lines pure and, and you would say well as soon as you took them out as soon as they left australia they aren't pure anymore because right. you moved them to a different continent you've put them in a box and you've told them who they can breed with and you know that kind of thing so are they really a jungle carpet anymore or the you know it's kind of a um like a little funny to think about i guess right messes with your mind but um i don't know interesting things to think about for sure now that's a rabbit hole i want to kind of jump down and this might (laughs) this might go a ways but like in the complete carpet python There was some talk of jungles and coastals not being separate subspecies, mm-hmm. and what's 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 your what's your take on that? Because I kind of yeah, get it, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, I don't know that I necessarily buy that. Like at one yeah. point, maybe, but well, I think I think what hit, what did it for me was going to Australia and seeing carpets in different areas. You know, if you go. And you and you know that okay in this area I can find a coastal and if I drive 20 minutes you know down the road I'll find a jungle they can interbreed with each other you know mm-hmm. I and my, my theory was if you took a litter of coastals you know you got what let's say you got two or three litters or you know clutches of coastals and you put half of the babies you know 30 babies in a dark you know deep rainforest area and you took the other 30 babies and you put them out on the grasslands, you know, with the uh, eucalyptus forest or something, and then you put them in a pen so you could kind of monitor them, and they and they uh, they kind of had natural predators and and all that kind of thing. Well, you come back in 30 years, what are they going to look like? You know, I, I would put money on the fact that um, you, those ones that you put in the dark rainforest, they're going to turn darker, or the ones that are darker will be selected for. And they'll survive longer and have babies, whereas the lighter ones might get eaten by a predator because they're easier to see in the dark forest. Whereas on the grasslands, the light ones will—it'll be the opposite. The light ones will survive and have babies. And so, you know, if if uh, as snakes kind of radiate from an area, they um, they might adapt in phenotypical ways to to that area. Mm-hmm. And you know how diverse and yeah, in appearance carpets can be mm-hmm. and so like you know in one clutch you can have all sorts of different appearances and so I think um, you know that's my my kind of thinking behind it that is uh, the the carpet pythons that are in the dark forest they tend to be you know more black and yellow to blend in with their shadows of the forest whereas the ones that are out in the grasslands or the you know the eucalyptus forest that, where the grasses are more brownish colored they're going to tend to be a little more brown and really I, I don't think there's a really sound scientific basis for um, jungles and coastals separated on the you know based on genetic studies that have been done and I, I was just looking at some some new uh, studies that have come out in the last couple of years and actually uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to announce this or not but we're actually working on a, a revision of you know a, a second edition of the carpet uh, complete carpet python. So we'll, we're trying to, you know, get all the latest research out and try to add some useful and uh, interesting information. But I was looking at the genetic studies that have been done recently, and there's, you know, the, the animals that kind of group together um, genetically are ones, you know, they, uh, that 
there's really no way to see a genetic difference between a, a, a coastal in, you know, the close to areas where you can find jungles and the jungles from that area. But if you go up, you know, up the Cape, up to the tip of the Cape York Peninsula, those ones kind of align more closely with the Erangias or Papuans, whichever, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, you guys didn't, you didn't jump on my back when I call them Erangias. No, because they're always going to be um, Erangias to me. I don't, I don't care what people I say. I personally don't care, you know. I respond I, to either know, I, or. I'll, I'll quote Shakespeare and just say a rose by any other name would smell sweet, right? So you, got, <laughs> you just, it was the name, but something that we use to describe something. So when we say jungle carpet, um, you know, you kind of know what you, what we're talking about. Right. An animal that's up from, you know, Cairns or, or north of Cairns or a little bit south of Cairns that, that is black and, you know, primarily black or black and white or black or yellow or, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas when you say coastal, you think of something near Brisbane or something like that. But in reality, there's a gradation that kind of goes up and down the East Coast. And some areas you might have natural barriers for that gene flow to occur. And, you know, with human modification of the habitat, that could be one route. You can have natural, um, you know, like a mountain springs up in the middle and cuts them off from each other, and they're not going to go over the mountain. So, you know, you have the divergence that way. Or you might have a desert pop up, and so they can't get across. That's kind of like the Noel Arbor Plain down in South Australia and Western Australia that separates. So there's a population of carpet pythons that got separated by the aridification of Australia down in the Noel Arbor Plain, and you've got uh, kind of an island population of Imbricata that can be found in South Australia, mm-hmm. and uh, and then you know the rest of them are over in Western Australia, and so you've got you know that's that separation and you know now they're kind of on their own evolutionary trajectory because there's no gene flow between the two populations you see the same thing with uh, knobtail geckos there's a there's the uh, nephora stellatus the starred knobtail gecko mm-hmm. and they have a population in south australia and they have a population in western australia and they're separated by you know hundreds of miles of desert and they're not you know mixing gene flow how soon before they're separate species or even you know uh, subspecies or even species and so you know those kind of things you know uh, that's that's always changing that's always uh, evolving I guess things are always adapting to new situations so um, you know things could be different in Western Australia as compared with South Australia or they could be the same you know maybe they won't diverge that much and maybe you know in another million or two uh, ten million years You'll have that Null Arbor Plain. Uh, uh, you know, it'll be wetter again, and they'll they'll come back together. Who knows? Um, but in the meantime, right now they're separated and they're on their own evolutionary trajectory. So, um, with the coastals and the jungles in, you know, that northern Queensland area, you don't see that separation, that physical separation. And, but there's actually a, a, there is an area that's a kind of a barrier to that gene flow. Um, the corridor, the black, black mountain corridor, where it looked like from the genetic analysis, the animals above that and the animals below that were genetically somewhat distinct or grouped, you know, together roughly um, with with animals in their own region. So maybe that black mountain corridor represents one of those genetic barriers. So the animals south of that, maybe you'd call those coastals, and the animals north of that, you'd call them jungles. I don't know. But I think what did it for me is there was a, somebody who found 
uh, carpet python in um, the iron range that looked exactly like a Darwin carpet. I mean, if you showed anybody that picture and said, where did I find the snake? They would say somewhere near Darwin, you know, because it looked just like a variegata. But mm -hmm. it was found in Queensland, you know, hundreds mm -hmm. of uh, thousands of uh, miles away. So, you know, is is that just the base genome that has those those features that pop out when they're needed, um, and that gene flow kind of occurs across that vast area over time? Um, that's I think that's what a lot of people who have been doing these studies on carpet pythons are maintaining that there is kind of a continuous gene flow that occurs all the way from Darwin down along the east coast of Australia and uh, down you know to, to Brisbane or south of Brisbane and then um, even you know that mixing moves down into the diamonds where you have intergrade zones between coastals and, and diamonds down there um, so that's why they're all Morelia spilota and mm -hmm. some people would just say they're all Morelia spilota there's no difference. Um, we, we don't have a strong enough case to make a genetic difference between those, but that's always frustrated me with uh, um, taxonomy is what's the cutoff, you know. Right, right. There seems to be 10 million different um, methods of designating species. At what point? Researchers, yeah. At, like at what point is it is it just getting out of hand to where it's like, okay, yeah. like we don't need to break these down any more than they already are? Well, yeah, and some people don't want to break them down, so they just say, it's, oh, it's Morelia spilota. It's not, there's no subspecies. But and at the same time... They say, well, look at this genetic, you know, look at this genetic variation, and you can see some pretty wide divergence within spilota. And so it's, you know, I, I think there's a case that, you know, maybe Metcalfi could be a full species. Um, some of the others could be subspecies. You know, it's really, really uh, difficult to... To make that claim that there's no genetic divergence or, or the genetic divergence is not deep enough because you know it's based on the researchers who are doing the work and there's a trend to not accept subspecies and to only elevate things if they're a full species and those trends come and go you know so it's kind of there's the, the I guess the goalposts are arbitrary and so that's what's frustrating with taxonomy you want it to be like cut and dry you know this is science mm -hmm. this is what it is this is this defines a species but, uh, you know, the species concept has evolved and is very complex, and I don't pretend to understand it, so it just frustrates somebody with a little brain like mine <laughs> to understand it. So it's, uh, it's hard, to, hard to work with when you're, you, know, you hear these ideas of what's a species and what's not a species or that subspecies don't exist. Now, right. what, what I kind of tend to favor what, or what I like is um, locality-specific. Yes. And that's very difficult with Australian pythons because right. a lot of them came over on dubious, you know, uh, in, in less than legal ways. And so, you know, it's hard to say, okay, this is, nobody will really tell you the where it came from. And so it's really hard to get locality specific. But mm -hmm. I think in, in my mind, that's kind of how I separate jungles and coastals. Jungles are just a, a locality specific carpet python that occurs in this general region you know like a Tully yeah. or uh you know you can get some of the localities like Tully or palmerston or right um, and so you can have a locality carpet and uh and I, I think that's the best that we can get you know and i think that's that's popular in a lot of things you know you look at different gray band kings and yeah. they are specific to roads you know i mm -hmm. found it on this road right. between this 
latitude and that latitude. But even then, this longitude. Right. Yeah. Like some of those, I'm like, get out of here. <laughs> like I see them, and I'm like, you guys are literally like, they just it's it's looked at with such a hardcore microscope, right? With that whole oh, thing, yeah. and it's like, give me a break. Yeah. Some of can, it, like can... I love gray bands. Yeah, but some of them just like you can put Highway 278 or whatever, and it's like I don't know where that is. <laughs> like even if you give it to me on the map, it's a nice gray band, you know. Yeah, and you know you can even look at that, you know, within uh, corn snakes, you know, specifically even from Beaufort County. Don't you know. go there. That's no, different. No, no, no. I'm, I'm saying don't it. Talk about my I, corns. I, like I'm that, talking Bots. good about your corn. Shut up for a second. And let me finish. <laughs> God, like the variation between corn snakes here is like you can't you can't tell me there's not going to be a locality oh, difference okay. because if you go from I you know everybody's heard of an Okatee corn snake. I thought you were about to talk start. start no, I'm I'm talking. I love corn snakes, man. You know everybody knows about Okatee corn snakes. They're the Okatee corn snakes were caught in our area. You find Okatee corn snakes here, but you go to the other side to some of the islands like uh, like Ladies Island or St Helena, and the corn snakes look completely different. You know, that's um, that's one of my little pet projects is local yeah. corns. I got a few wild cots that I'm I'm gonna be playing with. Yeah, and the, the variations yeah. that you can find, you know, on the the plantation I used to uh, I used to work at, you know, on the same stretch of road, I found um, a corn that was extremely red and had very very solid defined blacks down its back and it was a beautiful corn but on the same stretch i found one that was you almost couldn't see a pattern within it it was just orange mm -hmm. with a very light light colored banding and, and they're completely different but i found them you know in the same general area on the same piece of property um, but then you switch over to the other side of, uh, of Beaufort and, you know, out to the islands. Cause you know, I was on, you know, one side and then you go out to the islands, which are on the complete other side and the corn snakes. Well, that's you just know, genetic you isolation. Get, yeah, yeah. You still get uh, so much variance within them, you know, and you can't, that's, you know, they're still all corn snakes. You know, they're not genetically different, but you know, it's a new subspecies and I'm going to name it. Oh my God. Anthropus, Gutatus, <laughs> Brat's Eye. Brat's Eye. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, I, I think that that's common wherever you go. You know, there's there's going to be some variability to, depending on different factors within the area <laughs> they live in, and so you know, really, that's the best we can get is locality specifics. Right. And and so you know, who cares what they're what the scientists call them? They don't they don't answer to a name. You know, you're not calling them and. They're not getting offended, so mm -hmm. who cares? You know, if and you that's... call Erie and Jaya's, they're not going to say, well, hey, Erie <laughs> and Jaya hasn't been a place for this long. Well, we still call Condros Condros, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> who cares what they're called? Just, and that's the funny thing, You know thing, what I'm man. talking about when I say Erie and Jaya. Yeah, know? exactly. That's uh, when people, you know, get their, the they get their jimmies in a twist. so bent out of shape. <laughs> yeah, just over, yeah. you know, when people get all bent out of shape about them being called Erie and Jaya's, you know, or vice versa, the guy. <laughs> that are like yeah. no they're eerie and jays they've been called that forever that's what we're called you know don't call them pop wins you know whatever you know i don't <laughs> care you know I, it See, was... that's when you call them eerie and jays when they get offended by it, <laughs> yeah <you> know? <laughs> for me you yeah. know i i call them pop wins because you know when somebody explained to me as to why they're called this it made sense to me i was like okay so i'm gonna jump on that train i don't care what yeah. people call them you can call them yeah. eerie and jays yeah. all freaking day you know i'll even do that just for sake of conversation somebody else obviously calls them Erie and Jaya's, I'll just go along with it and call them that too. So there's no, none of that confusion yeah. there. You but know? it's just it's, stuff like when you announce an 
in a book that, hey, there's technically no difference between coastals and jungles. That's just asking for you to have just a complete riot on your hands, even yeah. though it has zero effect on the people <laughs> yeah, that keep them. Like, it like, doesn't why matter. Why does it matter? It doesn't you know? change anything, yeah. but for whatever reason, yeah. people will refuse to admit that that's the case. You know, and I feel like a lot of those people <laughs> would be, you know in our world or that are the purists and they don't want to sit there and admit like, no, you know, my, my pure coastal is different. Yeah. You know, my pure coastal is different from my pure jungle. You, you know, don't they don't, that. they don't want to hear like they're actually the same but they just yeah. look, a I mean, it does kind of like, it stings a little bit to know that jungles and coastals might technically, or I guess are I mean, technically I don't, not that different. I don't like, really work like, with either of them, so I don't, I don't care. Be, like, I kind of want them to be different, but then you're kind of like, yeah. I don't know. It just kind of takes sort of the novelty out of them, I guess, a little bit. And that's maybe that's know. why people get their feelings hurt. In my head, in my head, what makes more sense to me rather than subspecies is like uh, what what uh, Justin was saying is uh, that they're more locality versus a subspecies. Mm-hmm. That, to me, makes more sense, you know, it, but, you know, what do I know? Those locality nerds are a whole other conversation. <laughs> well, Look, what's, what's uh, funny, too, is, I mean, you could say I've got a coastal, I've got a pure coastal, and you could have a coastal from, you know, south, uh, north, uh, New South Wales, or you could have a coastal from, you know, northern Queensland, and if you breed those together, I think that's just as bad as breeding a, a jungle with a coastal. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, the jungle and the coastal are probably closer together in, in locality than the northern Queensland versus southern or northern New South Wales coastal. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's just when, we, when we have labels, um, there's kind of a connotation that goes along with it. And when you say, I've got a, a, you know, just a coastal, you're talking about a huge range, and you're talking about a lot of different localities. <laughs> yeah. localities. What kind of carpet and, is you know, this? Like I said, we we don't know where a lot of those may have come from. I think a lot. It's assumed that a lot of the early coastals came from northern um, northern Queensland. And I, you know, I'm reading the uh, the Stolen World, um, that book that talks about Crutchfield and Hank Molt, and and Hank Molt was getting um, shipments in like all the time from a guy who lived uh, in Cannes area. And so probably a lot of the coastals that were coming in, especially around that time back in the 70s, 80s, were probably from northern Queensland. And so, you know, the jungles and coastals that were coming in probably weren't too far apart from where they were collected. And so, you know, you probably have a more genetically um, solid breeding if you bred some of those old lineage coastals with a jungle than you would if you bred a, a Brisbane locality coastal with a northern coastal. Right. So, I don't know. It's, it's funny to think about it. You know, it is kind of fun to get a rise out of people when you talk <laughs> about that stuff. But, I mean, again, we're, we're working with snakes in boxes. Nobody's going to take these um, animals that we're producing and, and release them into the wild. Yeah, you know? no. That's, that's kind of silly to, to think we are maintaining some um, pure genetic uh, resource, but mm-hmm. you know, at the same time, I can also see, you know, when you, like somebody made, I think it was Nick that made the comparison between, you know, a, a cubic zirconia and a diamond. If you pay for a diamond, you want a diamond, not a not a CZ. Mm-hmm. And so he's saying, you know, if, if if I tell you this diamond python has, you know, seven eight percent jungle blood, are you going to buy it? Are you going to pay a diamond price Ew. for it? Probably right. not. You right. know, so. Uh, that's, I guess we just want to know what we're getting. 
and and that's the tricky thing is because a lot of times we can't know what we're what we have there are some people who really dedicate a lot of effort to finding out exactly where they came from and who who brought them in and where they where they were originally collected from and if they can't get that information then they don't buy those animals mm-hmm. and you know i respect that why not you know that's if that's the way you want to go that's fine um, i've also seen some of the most insane beautiful looking carpet pythons that are complete you know mutt crosses with every subspecies <laughs> in them. <laughs> some of that stuff that don patterson has lately yeah. you know his crazy looking carpets that are just gorgeous have you know diamond jungle brittle <laughs> everything, yeah. everything. It's everything. Like, yeah. right. and and some of those i mean makes you wonder what what's going on there i think it's kind of a an interesting project and right. you know, to some a ball people worry oh something <laughs> yeah some people worry oh if we if we praise that or think that's cool then everybody's going to start doing that and pretty soon we'll have no we won't be able to know what we have right and, you know that's a reasonable argument with there's the, always the going to be a small chunk of guys that try yeah. to better the purists that's never yeah, going to change so. you know because and me personally you know when i first started getting into carpets you know i wasn't you know i didn't care as much but as i started to learn more you know i kind of started to like the idea of you know the the pure you know lines of stuff and as i learned that that's you know not it's so easy to come by you know that that's also that's another reason why i kind of dipped into the the pop one world because you know you can still get farm hatched babies you know and imported animals so you know there's no questions about those you know there's no question about uh, the purity behind you know know, something something that came straight off straight off a farm you know that's another reason that i i personally kind of dove into the the poplin world you know yeah although i would say those uh farms have a have just about everything under the sun sometimes I don't know. There was there, who was it? it was like uh, Forrest Fanning went to like Indonesia and went to a reptile show and there's guys walking around with parentes and like all these. Jeez. Oh, illegal, that was malaria. You know. What's that? I Malaysia. Think, yeah, I think that no, that was uh, Dan Malaria. I think did that. Oh yeah, yeah. He he did he did the same same thing. But I think uh, both oh. both Forrest and I think Bar Barchik they went together and did one of those shows and yeah, Dan was judging a, a competition and. Yes, I think that was probably the same place or, or a similar situation. But yeah, they that's uh, they don't have a lot of um, enforcement of wildlife laws over there, <laughs> so you can walk down the street with your parentee and nobody's mm-hmm. gonna hassle you. You know, <laughs> try to, the government's not gonna try to take it away. But if you did that here, you'd probably be questioned and you could be in a lot of trouble and get a fine or even jail time these days. So mm-hmm. um, you know, so you know, maybe at the farms, who knows? Maybe they've got a, a are uh, more from Australia, and they think, ah, oh, let's just throw these two together. Okay, okay, <laughs> I, I, You're ruining I, it I need him. you to stop right now um, because I'm going to go <laughs> home and sell everything I have. <laughs> but you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, there's no, there's nothing that's necessarily for sure. We can have a great idea about it, right? See, and that's... but you know. As long as you're keeping what you enjoy, you've got a snake in a box. You know, you're not going to be restoring the wilds of West Papa or Green Tree right. or whatever you want to call it. You know? That's an well, argument well, I've well, made I... with Green Trees too. Is like people are have yeah. you know I have this is a pure RFAC or whatever. It's like is it though? Like, did you yeah. go and get it yourself? But see that that's so many, that that's like the telephone game. Made, that argument can yeah. be made because there's so many there's other uh, you know species in the areas for them to cross with the carpet pythons 
there's only one species of carpet python in uh, West Papua. You know, it's they're just yeah. the the pop ones. You know, that that's it. You know, with the green trees, there's other things. So I could understand that. But you, you know, think you're cool. And let, no, I don't think I'm cool. All right, I'm just. <laughs> why do you, why do you always gotta do that to me, huh? I just I'm I don't know. It's, but I yeah, understand. What I, you're I, saying, I hope you realize you just crushed everything I ever thought was real. Justin. None of your no, carpets I, are pure. I, I, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm like, just kidding. I'm not, I'm not saying that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm just no. saying that's a, that's a possibility. No, but, yeah, I, I, um, I don't know, think just you're like wrong. Anything. And you know, where where everybody's so tight-lipped about where things came from and how they got in the country and mm. the way people blab when they do get information, they want to, you know, they want to look important. So they, because they they're in the know and they know what they're talking about, so they're going to tell everybody. And then mm. they're like, why did I tell that guy that? You know, he just went and blabbed it to everybody and. So it's it's a tricky thing, and I I get that, and I've I've heard some people you know have told misinformation just to mess with people, you know, so they go out and broadcast this wild accusation and and just to make them look like a fool or something. I I don't think that's too cool, but you know that could happen as well. So you know, uh, it's it's a snake, you know, <laughs> in a box. But at the same time, I I like to kind of know where where my stuff came from or or try to get that background information even though it doesn't stick in my head as well as it does for other people i like to first i think first off i like to enjoy what i'm looking at you know i, I want to have a snake that i keep that keeps me excited to keep it and keeps me back coming back to just stare at it in awe and wonder and you know and i think too much anymore we get it's like just on to the next thing you know if, if uh if all animals were equally available and uh you could choose anything you wanted and you, you had no no uh, limits on resources or it, it didn't cost any more than any other animal, you know, would you still be excited about it? That's mm -hmm. kind of the question I like to ask myself. Do I like this because it's worth something or do I like it because it's a cool snake and right. I just really like it? You know, and that's and again. I always go back to pop ones, but that—that's basically me. I don't. I'm not into these because they're going to make me a bunch of money. They're not expensive snakes. Yeah. I just think they're awesome. I don't, I don't know what yeah. it is. They're just super cool. And and that's how it should be. Yeah, you know, I, I work with them because I like them. You know, I really like. I just like the species, and you know, it's they're not going to make me rich by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I don't care. I don't do this to make a bunch of money. I do this because I love it. I keep conjures because yeah. I like anxiety. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> Anxiety is my adrenaline. Speaking of, of of which, with that book you did with Philip, what was kind of the the basis for y'all wanting to like what? How how did that sort of come about? Was it just a matter of saying like, yeah. hey, there's really not that much literature on these things? Like, because I know Terry keeps them was keeping them way different than anybody else, and was it kind of like yeah. a time? Well, to... like I said, you know that that conversation with Terry kind of got my wheels spinning about chondros. And then when I saw him in Australia, that was like, okay, these are cool animals. I, I want to see this in my reptile room, you know, when I walk in there. And, and so that was kind of the impetus for getting into them and, and trying to, you know, keep some here or there. And I, I've only got a pair right now, so it's not like I'm some huge chondro breeder, but whenever I get into a new species, um, I like to do as much research as I can. And, since I work on the university campus, I have access to the library and to, to digital resources you know, that the library has access to. And so I can basically get pretty much any article. It was kind of funny because when we were doing the, the uh, research for the Carpet Python book, I, uh, we came across 
people talking about this Taylor thesis. You know, they kept ta referring to the Taylor thesis, and it was showing this genetic analysis, and, and everybody was going crazy about it. And, but it wasn't published. It wasn't an article. It was a thesis that somebody had done for their graduate research in Australia. And so I contacted the university, and they sent me the physical copy of the thesis. And so I had it in my hands, and I copied it off. And then my library got mad at me because I didn't go through the proper channels to get it. But, <laughs> um, and they're like, "How did you get? Why? How do you? Anyway, don't do this again." So I Your got rules mean for, nothing. But I was to able me. to copy it off, and I was able to read the Taylor thesis, and I saw all the you know the different things they were doing, and and the genetic analysis that had been run, and so we could put that in writing and cite that thesis as the the resource. Now that was never published, but I, it seems like a lot of publications coming out lately that have genetic analysis of carpets are along the same vein. They, they're kind of following the same pa pattern that the, that the Taylor thesis followed. And so we have, you know, these genetic analyses and such. And so, um, you know, when I started thinking about keeping chondros or getting into chondros, Terry said how cool they were and how easy they were to keep and how bulletproof they were if you just did, if you just ignored them and stuck them in a box and kept them at room temperature. They're about the easiest snake to keep, and they breed just fine. You know, so I'm thinking, okay, that, yeah. that's that's about my level. You know, <laughs> <laughs> working a full-time job and having a family and stuff, so yeah. I need something that's relatively easy to keep, and, and so that's kind of what I jumped into them at that point. Because uh, I, I used to be uh, business partners with Ben Morrill, and uh, we had he, he lived out here. He was going. We went to you know same university. He did his PhD in my you know my department with one of my colleagues, and so um, you know we we uh, started going in on projects together and stuff. Um, we met after I started uh, graduate school up at Utah State, and he was uh, working on his undergrad, and so we you know we're still great friends, but we've since split the business, but. Uh, and he's moved on. He, I think he just keeps ball pythons now. I think he was just keeping carpets to humor me. I don't know. But <laughs> he, he's a he's a great guy. Really smart. Just knows his stuff. But um, so he was a lot of fun to hang out with. But he got a green tree python, and he was keeping it like they said to keep. You know, give it a hot spot of 95 or whatever, and spray it every Jeez. day. And it didn't last too long. So we're thinking, ah, oh, these are just they're too hard. They're too difficult. And then you know, talking to Terry, that kind of was a uh, pretty you know. Uh, paradigm shift and so I'm like okay maybe they're not so bad and so I started doing research on them and I started reading articles that I could get from the library and I started reading all the literature I could get my hands on and I'm thinking okay this is cool you know and then when we saw them in in Australia I'm like I'm cold this is cold and this thing's out hunting you know what, what's the deal why do they need a 90 degree temperature and I'm right. in the rainforest and then the rainforest kind of stayed 70 degrees Huh. You know, day or night, <laughs> winter or summer, it was yeah. pretty much the same temperature. I mean, Iron Range is a little more variable than some of the uh, climates in New Guinea, but I'm thinking, okay, everybody's saying to keep them at 90 degrees, and, you know, I saw the ones in the wild. I'm like, these are small snakes. They're like an Antaresia. They're not like a carpet python, mm -hmm. but all the ones I see in captivity are like a, you know, a carpet python size. And so I'm right. thinking, you know, there's a disconnect here. So I wanted to get that literature that had you know wasn't um wasn't published at the time that the the first uh, complete chondro was written and so he didn't have access to that information some of it anyway and so i thought you know that needs to be known and so that was kind of the impetus for writing the book is just that um research that i'd done uh, to put it into kind of an easily understandable format that people could read and kind of see get a glimpse of what these snakes were doing in the wild and how they lived in the wild so that's that's my my enjoyment in these books 
is the natural history because that's really you know, what I find cool and interesting. Some people geek out on like the evolutionary history or keeping them in cages and things like that. But you know, my my big thing is their natural history. What are they doing in the wild, and how can I bring some of those important elements of their natural history into a captive setting to keep them happier, or keep them more naturalistic, or keep them healthier, or have them live longer, whatever. You know, mm-hmm. now you know, live longer. Nature is cruel. Things die very quickly sometimes in nature and very uh, gruesomely in nature so maybe some aspects of nature we don't want in our, in our cages and, <laughs> yeah. um, you know I, I thought one of my favorite examples that Terry gave um, he was giving a talk and he was talking about prairie rattlesnakes he's like we've got we keep prairie rattlesnakes at the reptile gardens and um, you know they live in a habitat that gets you know 12 inches of snow during part of the year he's mm. like I don't shovel 12 inches of snow into my cage. <laughs> that's, that's not a, an aspect of their right. natural history that's necessary for their captive maintenance. So separating those things out of you know what just happens where they live and what do they need to thrive. That's kind of, right. kind of the, the idea. You know, what, what, how do we keep them more naturalistic so they're healthier? Because a giant, you know, overweight, sluggish car, uh, chondro that has a prolapse, you know, that's not... That's not what I saw in Australia. Right. So I didn't want to see that in cages, you know. So that's kind of the the impetus for the book. Well, that's and crazy. Why I got excited to write it. The the now some some aspects of the book are really weak. You know, I, I don't I don't know a lot about the different localities or you know the different things like that. And so that was kind of weak. And then um, a lot of the pictures. It's really hard to find pictures of wild chondros from New Guinea. Oh, I'm sure. And so. Yeah, that was a challenge, and most a lot of the pictures are from you know, Australian or stuff that uh, Rico took pictures of at the farm. So that was the complaint I've heard. Like I've seen all these pictures, you know, why? Do, why do uh, I want that to wasn't my problem at all. I thought the book yeah. was awesome. <laughs> Paradigm shift was actually the word I used to just dis- the the statement I used to describe that to people that were asking me about it. Because it just I completely see, right? blew my mind, man. I was like reading it, and I was like, this goes against like everything you read about these mm-hmm. things. Yeah, insane. That's, and that's the big thing is, you know, people need to know this. You know, when we're when we pass these things along, we say, oh, this is how it needs to be kept. And what's that based on? You know, somebody's idea. Like we all thought they ate birds because they live in the trees and they're they're green, so they must have to blend in with the leaves so they can catch birds. But somebody who did a dietary analysis found their birds make up a very small percentage of the diet, maybe five percent or less. You know, they're mainly eating rodents. And when we set, when we rolled up on this green tree python, it was hanging, you know, maybe three inches above the ground, and it was had its uh, body wrapped around the trunk of a of a tree that was maybe uh, eight eight inches in diameter at the base, so kind of a skinnier tree, and uh, and that made me think, hey, you know, why do we, you know, why do we think they eat birds, or you know, and then and then to see it was gone the next day, you know, it climbed up the tree, and so. It kind of comes up and down the tree every day, and reading some of the papers, they track them and show that how far they move and how up, up and down the trees they go every day. And so I'm thinking, man, these guys are climbing like 30 feet up and 30 feet down every day. Mm-hmm. That's that's a lot of exercise. Right. And now you know we have these sitting in our cages, you know, on a on a on a horizontal branch, and they have really nothing to do and I, I've heard some accounts like if they're hungry they'll move all over they'll move do circles around the cages and um, so it's kind of kind of interesting so I thought you know that's that's something we probably ought to have in our captive environment too a way for them to 
move up and down, to move around, to get some exercise. Um, Ryan Young, he was talking about how, you know, his move all around the cage, and somebody was saying, well, your cage isn't tall enough. And he's like, hey, if they're moving beyond a four-foot cage that's uh, four-foot horizontally, what, you know, there's, is that a ton of difference if they're moving all that way, you know, kind of doing laps around the cage? They're getting some exercise. You know, it's better than putting them in a, in a taller cage that, that has less area for them to move around yeah. in or that has two little sticks, you know, that are vertically oriented. Right. So well, just, in my cage, I try to give them a, a, a vertical, you know, perch so they can climb up and down a vertical perch as well as a horizontal perch. So, mm-hmm. um, and they'll use it, you know. I wait till they come down to the bottom and, and show that behavior before I throw in a mouse or something. That it just that that book as a whole just made me really think about just how little do we actually look at this kind of information for anything we keep. Yeah. You know, are we even right. for something simple as you know ball pythons, leopard geckos, whatever? Like, are we really taking a look at this kind of information that we're that people are getting and applying it, or are we just sticking with what's been regurgitated from Reptiles magazine since you know 1995 or whatever? Yeah. It's like this yeah, is right. how how much we are we missing out on because of that? Yeah, we tend to be tear sheet people, right? I I was really shocked. To, I think it was in either the Barger's book or there was a publication that Ben cited in his uh, doctoral dissertation that was that talked about ball pythons that they climb. The, the males will climb up trees like they're um, almost considered arboreal, you know, especially when they're younger. They do a lot of climbing, and uh, you know, there's there's some idea that maybe they're kind of niche partitioning where the males will go up trees looking for nestlings or you know different things up in the trees whereas the females are down on the ground so they don't compete with each other you know different ideas like that is just cool but would you ever give your ball python like a tree to climb up in its cage probably not you know <laughs> but maybe we should be honestly uh, that's uh that's something i thought about uh it, this this was kind of a joke but uh justin got me a ball python for christmas as just, uh, you know, we call we call him our mascot for Spurgeon. the podcast. He's a cool little snake, and you know, when he gave it to me, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go like full naturalistic with this dude. Like, give him areas to, if he wants to climb, let him climb. You know, do yeah. a clear substrate, and I'm gonna, you know, I'm not gonna experiment, you know, beyond his means. Like, I'm not gonna do anything that's gonna put his. His, his ten foot tall life. enclosure. Yeah, I'm not going to do anything that puts his life or his health in danger, you know. But I'm going to, yeah, you know, experiment yeah. a little bit, you know, because back I used to have my one of my first snakes was a ball python. You know, I, I no longer own it, obviously. Um, yeah. But I had him at an adult phase. I had him in a three by eighteen by eighteen enclosure, and I t- I'll, I'll be damned if he didn't use every inch of that thing. He was all yeah. over the cage. I gave him a big amount. This was before I even knew about racks. Could afford anything like that, so I used glass enclosures. But he, I remember him always cruising around. You know that thing, checking everything out. Yeah. You know, and I, I feel like there's more to, you know, even ball pythons than than what they live the in eye. termite mounds. <laughs> they stay there forever. Yeah. Sometimes they don't see sometimes they sunlight. Eat. <laughs> They're practically blind snakes. Yeah, they only eat once that's, a year. I mean, that is an important aspect of their their natural history too. You know, they do hang out in burrows for right. for a long time. Yeah, yeah. But other times they're not in those burrows. What are they doing then? And you know, I I just thought it was kind of interesting that it took me ten years to hear about that. After you know keeping ball pythons for ten years, I finally 
found out that males climb trees. I'm like, why did I not know that? Why is this <laughs> not in every, you know, any article that's written about ball python? It's I mean, in your fun. defense, the, the body doesn't match the action. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. We, we assume, like, here's another cool example of uh, woma pythons. You know, we think, okay, they're, they're adapted to dig in the sand. And so they're down on the ground in the sand, you know, digging in burrows and catching stuff underground. Well, some researchers were doing a tracking study on some Walma, Walma population, and they're tracking this Walma, and they can't find it. And finally, somebody looks up, and it's, it's halfway up this 30-foot tree, or, you know, 40-foot <laughs> tree, and it's trying to catch a bearded dragon that's sleeping oh in the tree. Oh, my God. What the hell are you doing up there? climbing up trees, you know, yeah. hunting bearded dragons. And so, you know, who would have thought that? Who would have expected that to be a right. behavior of a Walma? Food is an incredible motivator. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and who knows how long they've been doing it? Maybe that's a more recent adaptation. Right. Since all it, the native uh, mammals seem to be disappearing from the deserts of Australia right. because of human encroachment or mm-hmm. feral animals or whatnot. So right. it's kind of maybe it's a desperate situation, and they're picking up new, you know, ways to, mm-hmm. to live. And, uh, it's kind of cool to to think about you know different things that we wouldn't consider, and you know it's hard because we all want to keep all these different types of animals and and you know we have limited space so you know we we start trying to uh, keep them in smaller and smaller in cages right. enclosures you know that's always the question how how small can i get away with right of, and how i how big can i do this or, i feel like you know, certain, I won't say we as in the three of us, you know, just as a whole, the hobby, yeah. you know, they hear something new, like, okay, male ball pythons climb trees. You know, I feel like a lot of people, you know, who breed ball pythons or even just, you know, keep them, you know, a certain type of way, they, they don't want to listen to something like that because they don't want to change That's what what's they're crazy, doing. That's what's crazy, though. And like, I, this I, book uh, came out, and then there were still guys in the Condro community that were like, no, no, I'm, st- I'm going to stick with yeah, Maxwell's. Exactly. I'm going to stick with Maxwell's book. Yeah, exactly. You know, a lot of people yeah. they get stuck in their ways and they don't want to change what they're doing, even though you look at you know their their natural you know environment and they're they're acting a certain kind of way. Then you know you you can't argue that you can't argue well, what you like see. These... You know, but they they hear they hear these facts and they say, Nah, nah, I've been doing what I've been doing for long enough. Like, and these it's, studies I'm not are coming change. from people though that don't. They're not coming from people that keep green trees. Right. Know, the people that actually did the field work and stuff. Yeah, exactly. They don't have, you know, any skin in that game. They're just mm-hmm. like, this is what we found. But people still think that there's right. some sort of, like, uh, yeah. like ulterior motive or right. something. That's just right. like, really? It's like, no, we're trying We're trying <clears throat> to help. And, you know, that's one thing I've been trying to do with, um, with Pop Wins. You know, one thing I do is watch a lot of the weather from... Uh, West, uh, from West Papua, and um, you know, one thing I've started doing is keep my temperature, my ambient temperature, slightly warmer, and my hot sides slightly cooler. Because from what I'm noticing in the weather patterns there, because I, I keep track of it, Nerd. you know, it's basically the same day in and day out. They have a slight drop at night, and then it heats back up during the day, and it doesn't get insanely hot. You know, some people keep, you know, their carpets right at 90 degrees. I really prefer around 86 to 88. You know, I, I, re- I really don't go for high temperatures. And I keep my ambience around 77, 78-ish. And, um, well, and two, you, you know, you consider these are usually nocturnal animals. So you right. want to be looking at the nighttime lows rather mm-hmm. than the daytime highs exactly. for your temperature guidance. Yeah. 
Exactly. So. Even funnier is the fact that this book, the Green Tree Python book, actually made keeping them easier. Exactly. Than Maxwell's yeah. book did. And everybody did. Like, no, nobody we're now telling to... you you don't have to keep them crazy hot. Yeah. We're now telling you you don't have to feed them really all that much at all. Oh, right. And now we're telling you you don't have to miss them constantly. Like, <laughs> And people are still like, no. No. Nope. <laughs> nope. It's not true. And, you know, and but, you know I, I, I would say, too, like, you know, if we, we can... They can be kept probably, you know, there's probably a million ways to keep them. Right. And, you know, in nature, they only breed probably every third or fourth year. So, you know, if you're looking to keep them naturalistically, um, you know, that's probably not a concern. Oh, I need to produce the heck out of these things. But if you're if you're like a commercial breeder right. to produce a clutch a year. It's not good for business. To, to feed your family, then you might... You might keep them a little differently. You might keep them a little hotter. You might get them a little bigger, feed them a little more, or whatever. But you, you, at the same time, you might not get the longevity either. So maybe your, you know, three thirty-eight clutches, um, you know, and then your female burns out and dies. You know, then you know you've got a dead female rather than a female that produces every second or third year, and she produces twelve eggs. You know, um, but she lives. 15 years and right. produces that whole time. You know, there's a trade-off and there's different ways to keep them. I mean, you know, our domestication of animals, you know, I think people just kind of move towards that. You know, that's our, that's kind of our MO as humans is to domesticate animals and to make their breeding uh, like a formula. You know, we want to mm -hmm. find out exactly how much we need to put into them to get the maximum output and, you know, and that's been done with uh, feed animals for you know, millennia. So we, we, uh, that's just what's in us, what's in our nature, I guess, is mm -hmm. how to figure out how to make these things, uh, domesticated, you know, how to make it easier for ourselves or make a formula. Uh, so that's a tricky thing to do with reptiles. And especially if, you know, you don't have a good grasp of their natural history, because I do think there are probably some aspects that we can tweak where, um, they, they'll, that will have kind of the best of both worlds where they'll, they'll will still be healthy but they, they're not going to burn out as quickly but they might have smaller clutches or they might produce every second year instead mm -hmm. of every third or fourth year so and I think that's a reasonable trade-off I don't think we should necessarily expect them to be um, you know producing you know 30 babies every year I, I that you know, that might be a little too far afield of their natural history but um, I don't know. I think about, you know, Frank Reedies. I don't know if you're familiar with him and his work with monitor lizards, but he came on the scene and started breeding monitor lizards and showing that they could have multiple clutches a year, you know, five or six clutches a year of eggs. And he was just producing these things out the wazoo. And, and uh, pretty soon, you know, everybody's adopting this way of keeping monitors. They they need a 150 degree hotspot. You know, he went to Australia and looked at them and saw what they were doing and saw their food resources and saw all these things firsthand. And then he came back and implemented what he learned in the in the wild into his captive uh, animals. And instead of you know, he he produced a lot more than anybody had ever produced and, and kind of revolutionized or caused a paradigm shift in the monitor keeping world. And you know, he was a He's a character. A lot of people had had a hard time with his personality because he's definitely a, an animal person, not a people person. So, um, he he does know his animals. I was I, I got to go visit him kind of in his heyday back in the late '90s, and uh, he took us out in the field. And he's like, "Look under that rock." And I look under the rock, and there's like two Gila monsters there. 
He's like, no, and they, we look, walk a little farther. Hey, look under that rock. And I look under there, and there's another Gila monster. He knew where all the animals lived kind of in this area. And he would go there every day, every other day, and study the animals that were in his backyard, you know. So he knew that he actually blindfolded uh, blindfolded us so we wouldn't know where his study site was, you know, because mm-hmm. he didn't know if we'd go there and try to collect the animals or something, so he was taking precautions. But um, he didn't blindfold us on the way out. So I think he trusted us by that time. But <laughs> interesting to see, you know, once you study an animal and you kind of know what they do and know what, what, uh, what they need and what they do in the wild, then you can, you know, revolutionize how they're kept in captivity and you can do very well with them. So um, hope, you know, my hope that maybe this uh, information can help uh, the animals in captivity be more healthy and, and maybe even uh, improve uh, their output and, and their availability so we have less of a strain on the, on the wild population. And uh, that's kind of the motivation, I guess, behind uh, a lot of these books is to try, try to help people understand these animals a little better and, and have you know, the scientific discoveries that have been made um, kind of tie in with how we, how we keep them in boxes, I suppose. So. All right. Well, we appreciate awesome. all the stuff you do. Yeah. <laughs> I think. Well, book book number four is uh, is hopefully coming out soon. We're, I'm, awesome. My uh, co-author's a little busy lately, so we, so we're uh, me and Steve Sharp are writing a book on uh, knobtail geckos. So oh, very cool. sweet. We're we're shooting for Tinley. Those always look like fun. Yeah, oh, they're they're great animals. They're really cool lizards, and I've had a blast in you know collecting all their natural history information. Steve's really good at keeping them too. He's produced you know several different species. Mm-hmm. Does very well with them, and, and uh, you know he's got a, a zoo. He works at a zoo, and uh, um, one of my favorite zoos there in uh, Nebraska, um, Omaha Zoo, the Henry Dorley Zoo. Such a cool place. If you're ever in that area, check that zoo out. It's fantastic. But, uh, so hopefully we'll, we'll have that out soon. Cool. For sure, for sure. Well, I think we're getting about that time. All right. So. Where can the people find you? Yeah, where can, where? Oh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm around. My, uh, if you want to be found. Still, my website still works and, and has my contact information. I know that's old school, but <laughs> australianaddiction.com okay. is my website. And, I'm, you know, I'm on Facebook, uh, uh, my name Justin Julander, and then uh, I'm on what's the other one? Instagram, I think. I'm on there <laughs> mainly just to look at uh, pictures of wild animals. Right. Try to follow people who post pictures of wild animals. So. Awesome. Um, I have I follow very few people on there, but right. uh, you're welcome to check out some of the stuff I post on there. Cool. Cool. Well, Mr. Julander, we really appreciate you coming on. This has been an awesome episode packed with, you know, great information. Uh, Justin told me you were coming on and that was uh, both I very was excited. excited. Yeah. yeah, I knew uh, it was going to be a going to be an I awesome episode. So much episode. stuff to ask him about the book. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we really yeah, appreciate you, appreciate you coming on, man. <clears throat> it's great to be on. I've really enjoyed your uh, podcast. You guys have a great dynamic. It's really fun to listen to your uh, interviews. So, uh, keep up the good work. It's, Thank uh, you. Nice to have uh, more podcasts out there talking about reptiles. I, yeah. I've got you know a few that I subscribe to, but you guys are definitely one of my favorites to listen to. What? Make it a fun. So. 
that's that's awesome that's awesome we really appreciate it yeah we've got lately we've been getting you know people just saying stuff on instagram facebook the 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 support has been uh, overwhelming and uh, we haven't had a single message saying (laughs) we suck so we must be doing something right yeah but yeah we yeah keep it going yeah we really appreciate your support i know that's a lot of work you know it's uh for me (laughs) (laughs) yeah so yeah keep it keep it going guys for sure look forward to hearing lots more episodes from you definitely thanks so much justin yeah no problem all right thank you oh what an episode man that was packed full we could we could keep going stuff, like man. we could have kept going man it's, I, a, it's I, just I, getting we late. never like <laughs> i'm always like an hour and a half is gonna be plenty yeah I, and then we get to hour and a half and i'm like i still have questions maybe, to ask. maybe we like, should change do you only work till eight on thursdays right yeah we should try doing these on thursday so we could run a little longer if need be because yeah, that's fine that does give us an extra I just, hour i just don't like i don't know staying, it's just like guests like him until, you know guests like him where there's just like there's, they just got so much, like especially him and Harlan too. You know, like there's just yeah so they're, much they're stuff to cover, and so it's like man, we could make this like so four hours long if we really yeah. wanted to. Like that's uh, tough. Yeah, so we might maybe see about recording on Thursday nights instead, um, just to get that extra you know time in because it worked really well with Casey. Casey, we did Thursday yeah. and we started yeah. right at nine. You know, because I think he had he was busy he making was, some yeah, notes. He was doing something else. But uh, yeah, if we get started at eight thirty, you know. That, that would definitely help us out. Um, but, yep, that was Justin Julander, everybody. Um, just He's, You can find his books on Amazon, uh, the uh, the Complete Carpet Python, yep. the Complete Children's Python, the Natural History of Green Tree Pythons. Yep. Awesome very, guys. If, even, if you nice. don't keep, even if you don't keep that stuff, it's a good those read. books are very much yeah, worth reading. They're just absolutely. like, he, it's not all super scientific. You know, they... they, they write it out in a in a very digestible way right. for people anyone that's not yeah it's homeschooled like you, you know? hey people who call popwins papayans, papayans. <laughs> guys like me you know you can't read they're very good books though yeah awesome and books. I, now you know i just had shout out to carly jones who's a hardcore supporter of the oh, podcast and carly huge shout out to you she messaged me the other day with a picture of julander's green tree book and she's like is this worth buying i said yes and i said but like you have that one and you have maxwell's book i'm like if you're gonna do it buy both yeah because maxwell's book it is it is dated a little bit like it is older but there is still more than enough relevant information in there and so i think having both those books combined the two you you got it covered yeah your green tree square yep (laughs) i mean it's really the only two books we have on them so we don't don't have much to go by but Episode 24. Yep. Follow me at Palmetto Coast Exotics on Facebook, Instagram. You can follow me at <laughs> JLB Morelia, um, Jake Bratz, as always. Subscribe, but, uh, SoundCloud, yep. iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Follow us on Facebook. All that good stuff. At the Herpeticulture Podcast. Yep. But just re- real quick, guys, I just want to throw in a quick note. Um, Southeast Carpet Fest. <laughs> not Southeast <Carpet> <laughs> but yes, always Southeast Carpet Fest. But uh, the past, this past week, um, we've had uh, we've had a couple people, you know, reach out to You're us about MVP. about the podcast, and um, 
I just want to say, you know, thank you all for all the support, all the yeah, great our, things you've had to say. Makes our days, our weeks. We're yeah, just, I, I, we're all we, we send had, each other the screenshots yeah. of these comments you guys leave and stuff. It's I'm great. like, dude, check this out. Yeah, we get like, what? It's, so it, it's. It, uh, it, it's great. We man. must be doing uh, something right. Yeah. You know? I, honestly, I, I don't really care what, what it is we're doing, but we're going to keep doing it because you guys, it, it's just been, it's been awesome. It's been honestly overwhelming. The, the, mm-hmm. the people who have come out and said that they love the show. You know, we've had people on Instagram say stuff and, um, you know, you guys know who you are and we just know that we really do appreciate it. Um, we I some, see all of it. I like, had somebody ask me today if we were going to get any merch anytime soon. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. I was talking to a girl today. We're working on it. Um, yeah, I was talking to a girl today and she's interested in her first carpet python or her first snake and she wants it to be a carpet python because of listening to the show. Um, I spent, I spent a while today talking Another to her. Another convert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so... That's that's awesome. Um, we love to hear it, guys. So any any comments you want to give us, please don't hesitate. Even tell us where we can improve. <laughs> yeah, you know, tell us. You know, what like, do you want? What do you want to hear? We're not you know, gonna. Where, where what don't you like about our show? You know, if there's anything. Which mouth I mean, breathing, yeah, probably. Mouth breathing, nose breathing, all that. Nose good breathing. Stuff. <laughs> I'm still trying to work out the kinks as far as the fine tuning of the mixer. And trying to get it to be not so sensitive, but this new mic is the effing bomb, dude. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty nice. It, my uh, like voice it. sounds so Very buttery clear. and silky. <laughs> buttery and silky. Oh. oh yeah. Oh yeah. Call me butter because I'm on a roll. Dude, you've said that so many times. I know. It's time for you to get a new Still joke. funny. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Anyways, episode twenty-four. Episode twenty-four. Her Pediculture Podcast. Justin Smith. Jacob Bratz. Justin Julander. Bye.